Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Harlan Coben is the best-selling author of 28 fast-paced novels of suspense. His latest book, Fool Me Once, features a protagonist suffering from PTSD. Several of his novels feature an amateur detective in the sports field named Myron Bolator. He also has a young adult series and a children's book titled The Magical Fantastical Fridge. His novel, Tell No One, became an acclaimed French film. After this interview was conducted, Julia Roberts was announced as the producer and star of a film version of Fool Me Once. This interview was recorded at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, and a shorter version can be heard on the BookWaves radio program. Let's talk first about Fool Me Once. It's very intricately plotted, but just before we went on the air, you said that you knew the ending, so you were able to kind of write it through without having to go back and, you know, put the gun in the handbag. Is that right? Yeah. When I start a book, I usually know the beginning and I know the end. I compare it to driving from my home state of New Jersey across the country to California. I may go Route 80. Chances are I'll go via the Suez Canal or stop in Tokyo, but I always end up in California. E.L. Doctorow is one of my favorite quotes on writing where he says that writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. So I know a few signposts along the way, but mostly I just know the beginning and the end. When you're doing that, there are also a lot of twists and turns within the the context of the book. So you may know the ending, but those twists and turns, don't you have to know those in advance as well? I don't. Uh, I know some. First of all, as some critics have pointed out, I rarely meet a twist I don't like. You know, I I like to over-twist. But as long as I can see the ending, it's sort of like you're walking in the woods, and even if the trees are are getting thick, if you can see where the path is to get back to it, then you're okay wandering around a bit. And so I think that's probably how I do it. The, most of those twists throughout the middle, I have no idea until I, I start getting closer and then I can kind of see them. Well, when you talk about the end, does that include knowing exactly, say, everything about the murder victim? No. I know usually who did it and why. I mean, the setup of the book where Maya who was a, a soldier coming home from the war. She was a pilot in combat, and her husband is murdered. And then two weeks later, she puts up a nanny cam to make sure that her daughter's safe, and she sees her dead husband playing with her daughter one day. So I knew the answer, how she saw her husband, why she saw the husband, where he was, what, what was going on. You know, I don't know exactly how I'm going to present it until I get there, but I know that part of it to start off. And then you can throw in red herrings because you know they're red herrings to begin with. But I almost never throw in red herrings for the sake of trying to fool you. If there's red herrings or they end up being red herrings, it's usually trying to somehow develop more about the character, more about the story, adding twists. But I don't think, oh, they're going to think it's this and it really has nothing to do with it. Even 
what you, what you might call a red herring, has something to do with, eventually with the answer. I'm going to throw out one that's fairly early on, which is nobody sees the body. So the possibility could be that he's alive. And it occurred to me at the same time as it occurs to Maya that maybe he's alive. I'm just wondering how that came into it. Did that come in at that exact moment when it hit me? I mean, did it hit you as the writer? No, that particular one hit me um, a little earlier where, you know, there was a murder, people, cops were there, things were happening, but did we actually ever see the body? You know, I'm trying to add mystery and trying to add uh, suspense and trying to develop, her, you know, add to her confusion. You know, Maya, this book is all from Maya's viewpoint and she suffers post-traumatic stress syndrome as well from her time um, overseas. So all of that, the more pressure I can kind of put on her, the more doubts, I think, starts to crack, Fisher starts to show, and you can really start working the book better. But that means that at the beginning, you make sure that she doesn't see the body. I knew when I was starting. I knew that part when I was starting because I didn't want, you know, I wanted to add doubt. So you have to add doubt in certain ways. <laughs> right. So, if, you know, if she has the body right in front of her and she also sees it on the screen, well, then it's going to be something very confusing. Harlan Coben. So you do not backtrack any of these books. You know where it's going. You said before we were on the air that pretty much when you do that, you don't need to put the gun in the handbag, that you're pretty sure as you go along. Has that been the case for all of these books? Jeez, I've written 28 books, so I don't remember now. But most of the time that happens. Don't get me wrong. I do a heavy amount of rewriting, and sometimes I will change things. But rarely do I have to go back and say, oh, I better add this to that because the ending won't make sense anymore. As you know, because you've interviewed a lot of a lot of authors, if you ask 10 of us how we do something, you get 11 different answers. Right. So knowing that, even I sometimes do it differently. I had one book called The Woods where I didn't know the ending when I started. I just had, to, I, I had never had it before, but I had to get the book started. So these four kids were in the woods and something happened and I didn't know what happened to them until about page 150 and then one of the characters was kind enough to clue me in, which was very helpful. But even I do it differently each time. For the most part, when I go back, it's more to rewrite and more to fine-tune the language, make sure the dialogue is working. Rarely is it because I have to add a whole another scene to, to make the plot work. I don't remember ever even doing that, but I'm sure I have. I've done everything. You know, 28 <laughs> books, you've done everything. Well, you just said that a character kind of let you in on it. And that, of course, brings up the idea of what part of a character is the author and what part of the character is whatever. And it also means that sometimes the character can, quote, take over. Right. Uh, does that happen with you? It does. I, I hate when authors make it sound so precious. You know, it's kind of like, you know, oh, I wanted to, you know, uh, the character just started to write it and my fingers were just moving and I wasn't conscious and God came down through me. And it sounds a little more foo-foo-y than it really is. I think the best writers are kind of like the best gods where they create the character and they give them free will, if you will. And in my case, it's more a surprise for me in the sense that the character is not doing what I want them to do. For the sake of a plot, maybe I'll want man X to walk in the room and man Y to give him the information. But when I get in that room, there's no reason why man Y would want to give him that information. That's often where the book becomes interesting, where the, the person is, is run up against something that I didn't necessarily foresee. And yes, I could make man Y give him that information. And then you as a reader would say, that doesn't really work. I'm tuning this book out now. When that happens, isn't there a fear at that point that maybe your ending is not going to work? 
I write with fear every day. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think writers who don't have fear are in trouble. I write with that insecurity every day that it's not going to work. I write every day thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I lost it. I'm no good anymore. Or I think this is great. Someone's going to read the okay books that are already out and then not read this one. So insecurities is part of what I live with. That fear is what keeps me going. That fear is what actually drives me to write more so I can make sure it's all going to be okay. But yeah, I oftentimes, in, I mean, every day in the middle of the book, I go, wow, this isn't going to work. And especially for Fool Me Once, the book that we're talking about, um, because the ending is so tricky and such a shock that I knew if I didn't pull it off well, the whole book would fall apart. So I wrote the whole book with that fear that if the ending doesn't work, people are going to want to kill me. You know, it's a, if the ending doesn't work, you're really going to be disappointed. Um, so that's part of writing. Well, what about the character of Maya? Did she then, you know, at some point say to you, in quotes, right, no, I'm not going to do this, and you have to find your way around that particular puzzle? Yeah, there's a, and there's a lot of times – I'll give you a quick example. I wrote a book a number of years ago called Backspin, and I had my hero, Myron Bolotar, was going into one of these sleazy motels, one of those no-tell motels, to get information from the guy behind the desk so that he could get farther along in the plot. So you're already writing the scene in your head, aren't you? You're seeing the guy behind a bulletproof glass. He's got he's unshaven. He's just wearing a, a ripped T-shirt, white, white T-shirt that's stained. He's burping up beer. So you have the whole scene written in your head. When Myron walks in that room, though, even though it's a sleazy, dirtbag, hourly rate motel, there's a guy dressed in tails, and he has a serious concierge desk, and he takes his job really seriously. So, like, he wouldn't give Myron information. He was more like, if you're going to commit an adultery or an indiscretion, you're going to do it in comfort and style here. You know, you're, he took the job really seriously. So now Myron couldn't get the information by slipping him a $50 bill and, and, and walking away. And so it opened up. But what's great about that, too, is, one, you took a scene that you thought was going to be a cliched hackney scene, you changed it around. Two, even though it sounds almost ridiculous, it felt more real to have a guy act this way. And it almost made this guy a character. Like, why does he take such pride in doing this job? And three, of course, is that, you know, there's come possibilities. Uh, and the fact is he, Myron does not get the information easily. Now I have to come up with a more creative way for him to find this information. So that's kind of what happens. So what was the creative way? I don't remember anymore. I wrote that <laughs> book in 1997. So I don't remember what he did anymore. I have to go back. <laughs> a couple more questions about Fool Me Once. What was the key that started the book? Was it about PTSD? Was it the trick? What was it? There's two or three things. One is I was honored a few years ago. I got to go on a USO tour. I went to Kuwait and a bunch of other military bases, USO being that Bob Hope and you think of Bob Hope and Marilyn Monroe, and I'm always thinking the soldiers used to get Marilyn Monroe, now they get me. If ever we needed proof we're not treating our vets well enough, that might be it. But in all seriousness, uh, I went there. It was a wonderful experience, very moving, and I signed books and uh, talked about writing. And one of the people who I met who had read, been reading my books for a long time was a female combat pilot. And I said, wow, that's a really kind of a cool job. I have to remember that. So that was part of it. Second thing was meeting a number of soldiers who were suffering post-traumatic stress. And then three, on the other side, it was the plot where I live in a suburb where we are under constant surveillance. And a lot of the parents are telling me how they're putting in these hidden nanny camps to watch their nannies. So, of course, my mind always goes to, well, what if? What could be the weirdest thing? that you could see the most shocking thing you could see on a nanny cam. Well, if your husband was murdered and two weeks later you see him playing with your little daughter on a nanny cam, that's going to wake you up that day. So that's how it all came together. 
Harlan Coben, she does something with the GPS. Can you actually get GPSs that you could put on cars? Oh, sure. People think I have this um, cutting-edge technology or whatever sometimes in the book, and I don't. I just take what's out there right now. You know, if you're going on a date with somebody, you Google them. Everyone does. That's just part of our life. Well, those GPSs you can buy in, I think, Sharper Image or Brookstone. or I mean, they're, they're easy to get in any, I think, Rite Aids or uh, CVSs uh, even have them. And you just take them and you try to get them online on Amazon, all those places. Just take them and you stick them on with a magnet and, and you can find out where anybody's going. Well, one thing I noticed is that uh, you're very careful about giving out information. She has a friend and we don't really know their relationship. How deliberate is that in terms of just like leaving it off? Is the point of that to just keep the book moving or is it to always have us questioning? A little bit of both, but mostly I, I don't like to write with backstory. I don't want to sit there saying, you know, Maya was born this year. She's this year, many years old. She went to the military. She did this. I try to make it all come out of the dialogue. And slowly, you don't need to know everything right away. One of the mistakes that I find younger or newer writers make is they try to give you too much information too fast. In my computer, I have a file called Spare. A lot of writers do something similar. And what I do is when I'm not sure I want something, I cut it out and I put it in the Spare file. So if a book is 500 pages long, by the end of a book, spare can be anywhere from 50 to as many as 150 pages long. To date, in 28 books, I've never put anything back. What it shows is that you can always get rid of stuff, you know, kill all your darlings. Was it Faulkner or Hemingway who said that? I always forget. It's that kind of feeling. So I don't want to give you, you know, okay, they met when they were seven years old and they started playing in the playground. You don't need to know it. You should, you, from following the dialogue between her and Shane or between her and her friends, Eileen, you should be able to pick up their relationship. And if you don't, I'm not doing my job well. Yeah, because there's some stuff about her relationship with Joe at the beginning, and then we get nothing, and then we get a little more, I guess, when we need it. Right. And that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah. I'm in her mind for most of the book, so it's where she's thinking, where she's at. Why did you choose to make it close third person rather than first? Uh, I don't know. I haven't yet had the courage. This is the first book I've done all. I've had female leads before. This is the first book I've ever done entirely from a female perspective. I think as a male writer, you may be asking for trouble if you do a female protagonist from first person. I've really been pleased that I've not gotten one response from a woman saying, oh, it's a man writing a woman. But I think to first person, maybe, and maybe next book I'll do it. Another book I will do it, but not yet. You know, this is all her perspective, but very close third person, as you mentioned. But first person, and I also, that's one reason. The second reason was I wasn't sure I was going to keep it in her head the whole book. Oh, okay. My intention when I started was to do that, but I wasn't sure I wasn't going to leave her head. Keeping it in her head creates all kinds of problems for you in terms of giving out information too. Yeah. Well, it's a challenge one way or the other. I've written books. I think uh, I wrote one that had 27 viewpoints. I've written some in first person. I've written third person. And I have written first and third in the same book. I've even opened and closed a book in second person. So, you know, you write this many books and trying to always mix it up and do different things. I don't necessarily say in the beginning, oh, it's going to be first or third. I start to test it out and then I kind of go with what feels right. It's really a feel thing. Do you worry uh, in any of these books about plausibility or do you think that that's something for other people to worry about? Oh, I worry a great deal about plausibility. It has to actually be more plausible than, than life. I mean, I don't know when this is going to air, but this presidential campaign, I, if I had written this in a book, you would take that book and throw it across the room, whatever side you're on. I don't care if you're right or, or left wing. There's no one. I mean, you know, today there was another bombshell. I, I, just every day you go, how much weirder can this election get? 
And it does. So if I wrote that in a book, you would take that book and you would toss it across the room. They found recently OJ, a knife at OJ's house. If I wrote that in a book, you take the book and say, that's the most unrealistic thing in the world. You toss it across the room. So actually, the novel has to be more realistic than real life. Well, it also has to have fewer coincidences than real life because otherwise yes. it appears contrived. Exactly. And there's a difference in coincidence and contrived. Coincidences happen, contrivances don't. So you have to be very careful. Where'd the title come from? When did you get the title? You know, it's funny. I don't really remember exactly. Here's the thing I've written, as I mentioned, several times, not 28 books. I think of the 28, I may have titled, I'm guessing six, maybe eight. Other than that, I have editors do it. Friends have done it. My brother did one. My French editor, my English friend of mine from England. I mean, all over the place, I've had different people make suggestions. And I really don't recall who fooled me once. I did not title it early. That I know. Um, I rarely, the, the next book I have, but rarely do I title the books early. You know, we were mentioning old timers before. Uh, and Ed McBain, uh, Evan Hunter, used to tell me that he couldn't write one word until he knew the title. I'm the opposite. Usually I finish a book, it's still untitled. On your uh, webpage, there's something about No Second Chance was at one point called Left for Dead. Yeah, I don't even remember that. But I remember <laughs> seeing a cover. But yes, it was called Left for Dead, which isn't, you know, I, I, and also a lot of the titles I come up with are really bad. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Tell No One, which was my, uh, my, my first New York Times bestseller in the French movie that you mentioned earlier. And my original title for it was, um, I remember sending it into my publisher, and it was, I titled it Big Tears Fall. And my publisher was like, what is this, a Native American book? Me, Big Tears Fall? And uh, they hated it. So, uh, and they were right. Um, and, then, and then my editor at the time came up with, it was a line right in the book. I don't know how I missed it, tell no one. And at the time, I thought, oh, tell no one. It's a little too generic. It's a little too, and of course, it ended up being a very good title. So I'm not necessarily great with titles myself. The book starts out and there's no political content. But by the end, it's pretty... Uh, its view toward what's happening in America today and the 1% is pretty strong. Was that just something that came from inside you and you weren't thinking about it? I had to try really hard. I, so I don't comment too often publicly about politics because I don't want my politics to sort of sneak in. And in fact, there's a bit of a gun debate in this book. Maya's a gun lover and I even talk about the Second Amendment, but I don't think you'll you'll get what side of the issue I'm on. And and Maya, you know, presents both sides equally. One of the things I try to be as a writer is not sympathetic. We're not sympathetic people, but we're very empathetic. And that is we have to be able to go in the heads of people who don't necessarily agree with us. So any political statements that seem to be in there, they may not necessarily reflect me. They may reflect more that, that character and that person, but they always reflect also what's going on in the country. She's a real person. I don't necessarily want her to be nice, and I, I want her to be real. Maya Stern, which is her name, outside of maybe Myron Bolotar, my series character, is maybe my favorite protagonist. I really loved writing her. She's tough. She's independent. She's damaged. But there's a, a fierceness to her that I, that I just love. Well, the damage part is, I guess, what makes her a little bit more interesting. Certainly. There's a scene in the, one of my favorite scenes. This is an example, of, actually, of when the character didn't do what I wanted him to do and ended up being stronger. She's at a, a, a soccer day in a small town in, in New Jersey yeah. where she's going to go. The, the kids are playing on the bouncy and the, and the merry-go-round and all that. And I'd originally intended for her to join her child and, and sort of play and have a, a happy scene. And she just couldn't. I had the character take one step forward to sort of join her nephew, niece, and, and, and young daughter and she just couldn't. Her soldier personality kicked in. 
and she had to just observe and she had to kind of watch and she had to be a silent sentinel. She was better at observing than participating. And I hadn't anticipated that until the character made that first step. Is that sort of similar when when we meet her her brother-in-law? He's kind of a drunken problem. And yet, by the end of the book, he's not. Yeah, he was a surprise for me also. I love that kind of character who actually, in my mind, is going to be something of a villain and ends up not. And again, he did that on his own. That sounds so weird. Of course, it was all me, and I recognize that. But I expected him to not do that. That's a good point. Harlan Coben, let's go back and talk a little bit about your career. You studied political science at Amherst, and it said on Wikipedia that you decided to be a writer in your senior year. What put you on that path, and were you a mystery thriller reader? Between my junior and senior year of college, I worked a job in Spain as a tour guide for Americans that were going over and visiting. Not because I'm a brilliant linguist, but because my grandfather owned the travel company, and that was my summer job. And it was a very strange experience. Americans acted very peculiarly on vacation back in those days. In foreign land, they were scared a lot. And I was going to write a book about it. I just thought, like, oh, this would be a cool thing to write a book about it. And one day I sat down uh, when I started going back to college, and I did. I wrote an entire novel about this experience, and the novel was terrible. It was self-absorbed and pompous and pretentious and all the things the first novel maybe should be. But from that, I got the writing bug. And what I loved, it wasn't necessarily mystery or thriller. I love what I call, and I don't really think I fit into mystery thriller. I know people need to categorize, but I call it the novel of immersion, that book you took on vacation, but you couldn't leave your room because you had to know what was going to happen to these characters. The first book of that I recall having that experience, the first adult book I recall having that experience was when I was around 15 or 16, my father gave me William Goldman's Marathon Man. And even though I didn't know I wanted to be a writer at that stage, I remember thinking, you could put a gun to my head and I wouldn't put this book down. And also subconsciously or unconsciously thinking, wouldn't it be cool to be able to do this for a living? So that's probably, looking back on it now, how it all came about, if you will. Before we went on the air, you talked about knowing people like, uh, well, you mentioned Ed McBain. We talked about Elmore Leonard. We talked about Donald Westlake. When you began writing, did you begin reading these people and seeing what they were doing? Yes, more to mid to late 80s, I would say, I started to pick up on these guys. And these are the careers that, that I sort of wanted to have. I didn't want to be the humongous bestseller who, who did one book and disappeared or two books. I admired and later became friends with guys like Lawrence Block, Elmore Leonard, Donald Westlake, Ed McBain, um, James Crumley. And they're all terrific company. And I was the young kid at their knee. I mean, I sat, I, I learned so much from those guys. I still see Lawrence Block a lot, who I think now, sadly, is the only one who's still alive of that group that I just mentioned. And I still see Larry in the city. Um, we're a member of a group that we have, which I have lunch, uh, dinner once a once a month. And um, those are the guys that I admired, and they were, and they also taught me that it's a job that you may think you're an artist or whatever else, and you may be an artist, but you have to treat it like a job. You have to write as often as you can, and you can't just you know sit there saying. Oh, I don't, I, you know, like a plumber can't say, oh, I can't, I can't do pipes today. I don't feel it. A writer can't either. A writer has to write, even if you don't feel it. Was it always novels? I mean, since then, you've written short stories. Uh, when did they, they creep in and how? They were later. I've only done, I think, um, I've done maybe three or four in my life. Our second one I ever published was in the New York Times op-ed page, which is, a, which is a strange experience. But I've only done about three or four short stories. I, not that I don't love the form. The novel is a certain commitment. And I, I need that commitment. I need to 
really sweat it out and know I'm going to spend eight, nine months with these people. Well, after the first two novels, uh, you picked up on a character named Myron Bolator, who is a uh, sports agent slash amateur detective. How did he come to be, and what prompted you to keep going with him after the first? The idea actually was an agent I had at the time had suggested he had done a sports agent series years ago, and he thought that would be a cool hook. Um, I'm not much of a sports, I'm a sports fan, but not a big sports fan. So I was a little hesitant on that front. And this is so funny because I think I started writing it in 1993. And people try to follow markets. And at the time, women detectives were the hot thing. So they wanted me actually, or he wanted me to, to make it a female sports agent. And I went home, and, I, and again, I had no career at this stage of the game. I'd written two small books for a small publishing house. And I tried it, and literally, uh, you know, you don't want to talk about magic. Myron was just there. He was in my head. He just came right out. He walked out of that, the, the, in the second scene, he walked into the room. His Esperanza Diaz, his assistant, was there. All these things just kind of happened uh, quickly. And um, when I sold it, I sold it as a series because that I thought would be useful selling it. So I wrote the entire first book. And one chapter of the second book, Drop Shot. And that's how I sold it as a two-book series. And then we went from there. And you wrote seven of them until you decided, hey, I got to strike out on my own, which must have been pretty scary. There was a lot of reasons at the time, though, I sort of had to do it. One was my publisher explained to me. I mean, they had sold okay, and, they, and I was growing. And, and they started off very, very small, and they were moving up. But if you really want to make a big move, it's hard for me to go to a major bookstore and say, oh, get excited about the eighth Myron Bolotar novel. Plus, I had this idea that I just loved and stuck in my head, and I realized Myron couldn't tell that story. And then, yes, it was part of it was also ego saying, can I do something else? Or am I going to have a career where I'm going to be where I am now, 54 years old, and writing 30 Myron Bolotar novels? And finally, the last reason was Myron ages and changes. I always wanted to be a personal Myron story. So if he ages and changes, he does have a certain shelf life. I'm going to have to stop him one day. And when I started the series, he was 28. I'm writing my first one in six years now. He's in his mid to late 40s. So as long as you want to do that, and I think the reader likes that and that they can follow his life that way, there has to be a, f a finite amount. A lot of writers, Parker, James Lee Burke, pick up on second or third characters. The only thing I could think of is at a certain point, someone is played out and you've got to move on. Had you considered... Putting aside the young adult, had you considered a second character rather than standalones? I have, and even Maya for a while I thought would be uh, um, a great a great one to do. But either they just have one book in them, or I just like the standalone thing. What I, what I do when I'm when I'm writing a book, I come up with an idea usually first. This is an unusual circumstance where I have this occupation first, but usually I come up with the idea. So I would have come up with the idea of. A mother seeing her dead husband on a, on the screen or whatever. And so then I ask myself, who's going to tell the story? And rarely is it the same person again, because that person's already been through something hellish like that, and now it's kind of unrealistic. When they're, when they're kind of done, usually that person's sort of done with their life. I always think, though, one of these guys, I'm going to write a sequel to Tell No One, or I'll write a sequel to Gone for Good. And maybe one day I will, but it hasn't happened yet. You wrote Tell No One. And I was looking at IMDb, and thus far, that's the only one that's come out as a film. And it was a, a French film that was an incredible film. I mean, it's available. Uh, it's a great film. Did you have anything to do with the film other than selling the book? Or? 
I well, I'm actually in it. If you watch closely, there's a scene with Kristen Scott Thomas and Francois Cluzet at a train station being being followed by scary tall bald guy, and that's played brilliantly by me. I don't speak. I'm in about eight seconds, but I kind of steal the film. We were nominated for nine Cesars, which is their Oscar, and we won four of them, and I was left off as a Best Supporting Actor nod, which I think was anti-Semitism, but we won't go there. But I did have an unofficial role where Guillaume Canet, who is the young director, um, very talented guy, he's no longer, I guess, quite as young as he was back then. We spoke a lot about it. Uh, I, was on, I was on the set a number of times, and that was a wonderful experience from beginning to end, an experience that I... When I'm trying to make things in Hollywood, I have not been able to duplicate that kind of freedom to make what we've wanted to make and, and do a good job with it. And it is, like you say, everybody still watches it. It's on Netflix. It's always on people's top 10 all-time thriller list. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on all of those sort of things. Um, and, and I'm still working on an American remake as we speak. So it could be tomorrow, but that's where we are now. These other books have all been optioned, but yep. you just haven't been happy with... Well, not just me. I mean, it would be nice if it was all up to me. But as writers in America, novelists don't really have much respect and they don't really care what you think too much. And I don't mean that as a, well, I guess I do mean as a parting shot. I, I've just, as you mentioned in the beginning, I've just finished a 10-part TV series, which is airing on Sky One in Great Britain, uh, which is called The Five. It was originally called Just The Five. Now it's called Harlan Coben's The Five because we have a show called The Five, I guess, in America. It's 10 parts. It's one big story. If you've seen shows like Broadchurch or Happy Valley, it's by the same producers who did Happy Valley. We did this did this together. And they really left us alone to do what we wanted to do. So if you don't like the show, you can blame me. If you like it, you can also credit me. I don't work well with others that, like with network executives and things like that, which you get a lot more of here in Hollywood. So that was a great experience. The French show was also, which is going to be on Netflix too, with subtitles that's coming any any day now. I don't know when exactly, but we sold to Netflix to to be a series here too. Let's put it this way. I haven't had much luck, and I haven't had much uh, good fortune yet in America. That could change that overnight. You know, I have several things that are going on right now. One of them could be, you know, a great movie tomorrow. But right now, no. Well, I mean, you've also got a, a very good situation where you could live on your work, and you don't have to go to Hollywood as a day job like Richard Price. That's part of it is that I say no a lot. I do have the actual threat and have just walked away. And I told the French when I was doing the French TV series and the British TV series that I'll give you the money back and we'll just say goodbye if it's not really going to be what I, what I want to do. So I am, I am very lucky that way. What brought you to write the young adult novels featuring, I guess that's his son, Mickey? Mickey's Myron's nephew. And what happened was in the 10th, which is the most recent Myron Bolotar book, which I wrote, came out in 2011. Myron, for the first time, met his nephew, Mickey, who was... Uh, 15 or 16 years old. And I kind of said, you know what? This kid has more stories than him. I want to spin off. I've never seen this actually done before. The adult novel actually spun off into a young adult novel. And the last couple chapters of the adult novel are repeated in the young adult novel, but now from a whole different perspective because now you're from the kid's perspective. And I just thought that'd be a cool thing to do. And that's number one. Number two, I have a bunch of teenagers. And I thought it'd be great to write a book that's for their age. My kids are a little older now. They're the youngest is a uh, is fourteen. The oldest is twenty two. But that's this is four or five years ago, and for those two reasons, and also again, I like a new challenge. I just like to do different things. So for those three reasons, I wrote a trilogy, a Mickey Bolotar trilogy, which was a lot of fun and read more by adults than I think by kids. I mean, the adults were were nowadays will read young adult also, which is great. And then there's the children's book. 
magical, fantastical fridge. I was going to a restaurant nearby, and, and their daughter is a, is a painter who has these really cool murals on the wall. And my wife was saying, you ought to write a children's book with her sometime, too. I love her art. We both loved her art. And I saw one of her paintings of a refrigerator, and I had this idea. Our lives reflected on those refrigerators sometimes. We put those magnets up, and there'll be family photographs. There'll be kids' artworks. There'll be coupons. There'll be tickets. There'll be school programs. There'll be electric bills, everything on it. What if the kid can disappear into that? What if a kid is like, he could disappear into these things on a, on a refrigerator and have adventures? And wouldn't that also stimulate kids? Wouldn't that stimulate them more creative? They can make their own one. And so um, I hooked up with a, an illustrator, Leah Tanari, and uh, we did it. Well, that brings up the question. You've been writing these kinds of books all along, whether they're the Myron books or or the standalones, have you thought about moving into different directions like, you know, Walter Mosley writes science fiction every so often? Have you thought about that? Um, I guess because they're not never really straight on mysteries, I don't really have much of an interest. For me, the suspense aspect is just a way of exploring what I love, which is family, friends, redemption, hope, uh, you know, all those kind of things in a book. But I really like having a page turning quality. I do want it to be that book that you can't put down. I do look at myself as coming from the tradition of cavemen where you sat around a fire and if I bored you, one of the guys picked up a big club and whacked me over the head with it. And so I don't necessarily want to lose that. I'm also not sure it's my job to do all that. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a fun discussion the other night with Lee Child, um, the author of the Jack Reacher series. We did, an, you know, he helped me launch the book in an event. And he has a great answer when people ask him about, you know, do you want to write something besides Reacher? And he said, it's not my job to give you like everybody experience. You know, if you want to read something about besides, besides Reacher, there's plenty of guys who can do that. I write a lot more variety than, than just the one series, but I think, I don't think I have much of an interest in doing anything else. I don't like long to write a certain other kind of novel. I'm going to ask you the kind of question, which is sort of um, an inside question here. When I read a book like Fool Me Once and sit down on vacation as I read it and can't put it down, I wonder what is are the mechanics? I know that on some level at this point they're internalized and you know exactly when to stop a chapter. But as you were learning it, what were the two or three elements that you learned create the page turner for you? It's funny. I, I still don't really know. I think there's a couple of things. One is I try to make every word count. So on every page, paragraph, every sentence, every word, I ask, is this compelling? Is this gripping? Can I tell this in a more interesting way? Can I use a better metaphor, a better analogy? Can I make this somehow more gripping? I don't want to bore you for a second. Elmore Leonard had the, the greatest quote ever on writing where he said, I try to cut out all the parts you'd normally skip. So that's, that's number one aspect. Number two aspects, we've been talking a lot about the twists and turns of the book, and especially the last one. But if it doesn't work on an emotional level, it doesn't work. So it's one thing to fool you like a sleight of hand. But if it doesn't also hit you in the heart, it's not going to work. And that's why I also learned that I have to make sure that I'm not just fooling you, that I'm not just stirring your brain or stirring your pulse, but I'm stirring your heart. And I think those are probably the two elements that make something a page turn. Is that one of the reasons why, even though she never is in danger, the kid in Fool Me Once, you're always watching out for the kid as you're reading it? 
You are, but I never put kids in danger. I mean, not to be, not to give anything away. I never put kids in danger. And if a kid's in danger, he's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. I just, I have four kids. I just can't, I can't go there. This book in particular, right? It actually, if you think of it, it defies a lot of the normal expectations because she really is not in much danger in this book. And the kids really not, there's no, there's not a big danger element. It's right. more of a, what the heck is happening element, which frankly I prefer. I don't like the big chase scene at the end. Usually I don't like, you know, I could have dragged out that ending longer and she's going here and there. I I think you either earn that emotional impact or you don't. That's a, kind of a hoary chestnut, the big chase at the end, the big shootouts with a bunch of people and the guy's got to go into the house somehow and you're holding someone hostage. I get so bored with that because I can see it coming. So my action scenes when I have them are, are much briefer, much sharper. I just I just don't like those things. But it's also, if you leave it vague enough, we could get worried about the characters, even though you're not. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's fine that you are. But I, what I'm saying is I didn't want, and this is also one of the temptations being on a third person of like showing the bad guy watching the kid saying, I have him in view. I can right. take him at any time. You know, some, I've done things like that. But this particular book, no, I wanted the suspense to more come from something more internal. Do you think that all of the TV shows, the cop and thriller TV shows, kind of put you in a position where you sort of have to look deeper to find the things that will work because thousands of hours now have been devoted over the years to various thriller suspense stories? Let's put it this way. I think that we have to up our game. You talk about old novelists, they had nothing to compete with. We have to compete with the internet, streaming, DVD, 8,000 million TV shows, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. I have to compete with all of that, um, with something that's an old-fashioned form, if you will. So it has to be particularly gripping. We have to really up our game. We have to make it richer and better so that people are choosing to pick up the book rather than look at free crap on the internet. It's always a challenge, and that's just more of a challenge. What authors do you read now? You know, I read a tremendous variety of stuff uh, almost all fiction. I don't want to criticize my nonfiction brethren out there. A lot of the ones I've been re I read, uh, if I'm reading fiction, uh, nonfiction, it's just to be something more narrative, like Eric Larson or, or Daniel Stashow or something, someone like that, because I find a lot of the nonfiction is an is a news is a magazine article that's been expanded. So I don't need to. I feel like I don't need to finish it. In the crime thriller genre, if you will. Um, God, you know, the problem is I, I leave out so many names, but besides those people who are still, I think, relevant today, they still, you know, people haven't read eight, the 89th Precinct books by Ed McBain, or they haven't read Dortmund, or they haven't read Parker, they haven't read, uh, you know, all Lawrence Block's books, especially um, uh, the Burglar series, and more than that, Matt Scudder series, you know, go back and go to Matt Scudder. I still recommend Matt Scudder to people all of the time, Dance the Slaughterhouse being my, my personal favorite. I still tell people to read Robert Parker, Ceremony being um, my favorite. I, I, you know, I love Michael Conley. I love Dennis Lehane. I love Lee Child. I love Laura Littman. I love Val McDermott, Ian Rankin. I love the fact that for the first time uh, in a while, we really have a lot of good foreigners, uh, a lot of people from Scandinavia, guys like Joe Nesbro, and we had Henning Mangle, and, and um, the Girl and the Dragon Tattoo books by Stieg Larsson. I'm hoping we get more of those in other spots in Europe because I think that enriches us. And I, uh, and I do think this is the golden age of thriller, mystery dome, crime fiction, if you will. 
where so many people are doing it so well. And I've left off. You'll say, I mean, what about George Pelicanos? Well, of course, George Pelicanos. I'll just, I, can, I can sit here all day and name people. And it's never been this rich and this many people doing it this well. So I'm proud to be part of that. Character names in your books are named after real people because of a charity. What's the story behind that? Yeah, sometimes I donate character names. People can donate a certain amount of money, and I will use the name of their choosing in the book. The, you know, it could be a neighbor, it could be a crossdresser, it could be a killer, it could be anything, so you have to have a sense of humor about it. But it's kind of a fun way of immortality. And what, I, what we do is we, the money's donated to charities, mostly Children's Aid and Family Services, which provides medical services to abused uh, foster kids. And I think we raised between thirty and $50,000 a book this way, and it's, it's fun for everybody. How did it start? Uh, somebody had done a charity naming thing um, a number of years ago. So it wasn't my idea originally, uh, but then I started to do it more often and, and make it exclusively about certain charities. And it makes it easier for you because you don't have to keep inventing names. Yeah, if there's a neighbor name that you sit there thinking is stressing out all over. Sometimes though, a name won't work. I mean, I don't. It doesn't. It can't change what I do. So if the name doesn't work, you have to wait a book or two. But that's just part of the fun of it. Harlan Coben, this book is out. Have you begun thinking, working on your next? I have. Um, I'm returning to my series character, Myron Bolotar, for the first time in five years, and I actually have a title. It's Home. And uh, when I. When I ended the 10th the Myron book, I really blew up Myron's life, and it's been interesting to go back and try to repair it. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>